From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with congressional candidate Patty Panzing Brooks. The, the question I continually get asked is, why in the world would you want to do this? And um, my only answer really is, because I've got a lot of family and other people to focus on in my life that, you know, that I love and enjoy. But I really believe that if an opportunity and a journey and a path opens like this to make some tiny bit of difference, that I am duty bound to serve and to work to fight for our democracy and our incredible constitution. Brooks talks about her upbringing, the formation of her worldview and her vision for Nebraska. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. What are you doing on April 14th? Come out to the Council Bluffs Public Library Foundation Speaker Series, where I will be in conversation with author Eric Larson. Eric Larson is the author of eight books, six of which became New York Times bestsellers, including The Splendid and The Vile, The Devil in the White City, and his latest work is an audiobook called No One Goes Alone. Join me for an evening with Eric Larson in the Council Bluffs Public Library Speaker Series, April 14th at 7 o'clock. There's also a book signing after the event. Tickets are available now. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator Patty Panzing Brooks, who has just launched a congressional campaign to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Here is our conversation. Patty, I want to start uh, with some of your history. Uh, I did a little bit of research here, and it seems like you've got a pretty substantial family history in Lincoln, right? I mean, do you, do you know all the way back what, what brought your past generations there to begin with? Um. I just know that, um, well, in Lincoln itself, my grandfather moved here to become a surgeon. And he came here on a bicycle from a small town in Nebraska and actually was one of the lamplighters and actually slept in a mortuary as he went to medical school. He actually, he got into college at 16 and started medical school at Nebraska at age 20. So, um, but my uh, mom and dad, we're here and I'm among five generations in this community. My great, my great grandmother also uh, lived in, actually all five of us have lived in legislative district 28. So, which is my district. So uh, I feel like Lincoln is such a, almost a genetic part of me. And uh, I, my um, dad was on the, he was on the city council right after World War II when they opened, uh, my uncle and my dad opened a law firm together, which was later joined by uh, Bob Crosby, the former governor of Nebraska. And uh, then my dad was acting mayor at one point, and then he died from lung cancer when I was 14. And my mom was became interested in learning disabilities and reading problems because my brother had dyslexia. And so she went to uh, learn from, uh, an organization, the Orton-Gillingham organization uh, in Rochester, Minnesota, it was affiliated with the Mayo Clinic. And so she learned about their techniques of teaching children and came back and started teaching teachers one at a time uh, to deal with these kids who are dyslexic. Um, and so at that point, uh, she decided it was too slow and decided to run for school board when I was um, about 15. And she ended up uh, handing me my diploma as I graduated from Lincoln Southeast High School. So there, that was, um, you know, I think that was a lot to watch as a young girl, uh, to see my mom running and doing something she cared about. And of course, my dad always talked to us about service to country, service to uh, our communities and giving back and, you know, leaving the world a little bit better than we found it. So that's, I think that's probably been ingrained in me. I never really expected that I'd for sure go into politics. I have been 
you know, connected to various uh, political parties most of my life. Um, and I did have, I did get a, a law, a degree. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in political science. So I suppose that if you look back, it seems like pretty normal that I'd be at this point. But <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, it's, it, it must have been something where your family, the opportunities that they had, and also the opportunities that they made for themselves uh, showed you that you could do a lot of that, right? A lot of people in Nebraska, it seems like they feel like they, you know, they, they don't have like the permission to just like run for office, to run for school board or whatever. But I imagine it was useful to sort of see that, to see that, oh, okay, if I want to make my community better, if I want to make changes in my community, there are avenues to do that. And you maybe, maybe get a little bit of a head start in thinking that way. Is that fair? That's a really good perspective, and I think you're right about that. Um, you know, it's it's funny. My my dad used to say about me that when I was five years old, that if I if he told me a corner in Copenhagen uh, at which to meet him at five, that I would do it and get there without any extra help from the rest of my family. So I think he thought I was industrious. He told me I could either be the first president of the United female president of the United States or a go-go dancer. Now that's a crazy whole, uh, uh, a, a crazy differential there. Um, but he had a very funny sense of humor. So, um, but I do agree that I, I, I felt like I was given opportunities and that I was believed in in a way that many, especially many women, have not uh, had the opportunity to have her parents or families believe in them. Well, so when you made the decision to study political science, it sounds like you you were thinking of different political avenues or, you know, the different sort of ways to get into positions of power in communities, right? So, I mean, did, did you have a vision when you were younger and deciding to study that? Yes. Um, I went to a women's college my first year, and then I transferred uh, to Colorado College, uh, to Colorado College in Colorado Springs. And at that point, I thought I was going to be a geophysicist. And then uh, I decided, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. And I in instead decided on political science. And at that point, um, again, I, I just wasn't really sure what I was going to do or where, how I was going to do it. Uh, I got out of, of, of undergrad and went down to Georgia and helped in a in a political race down there. Um, and I was helping schedule the candidate's wife, and they were running for Senate against a an old timer, Herman Talmadge. And uh, so it was, you know, I think that I started getting involved in some of that and came back and helped run. Uh, Bill Danley's campaign for the city council. At that point, I was a Republican. And actually, um, I co-chaired uh, the Republican Party uh, at the end, at the in the late 80s, uh, with a fabulous man named Sam Seaver, who is no longer with us. And um, that was a I think most people are totally blown away that I co-chaired the Republican Party. And um, it was it was really um, you know people asked me what happened and and I sort of say well I really haven't changed that much I think the parties have but anyway so that was the Lincoln Lancaster uh, Republican Party was Lincoln Lancaster County Republican Party so I mean what what, so, did it, what did it mean to be Republican to you at that point when you say it changed like what what was it that drew you that made you feel at home at that point and what the Republican Party used to be well. Um, it was about business and I was a uh, I my husband and I have a law firm together and, and we do business and real estate and corporate law and so uh, when I when I got out of law school I think there was an expectation that often women would go into family and juvenile law and I was determined to go into business and corporate and real estate law so that's what I did and you know when I was on the um, when I was when I was on the Lincoln Lancaster uh, Republican Party co-chair, at that point I was elected by the Republican Party, and I was I was chair of the Lincoln Lancaster Commission on the Status of Women, and I was on the Planned Parenthood board, and I was elected by the Republican Party in Lancaster County for that position as co-chair. So, you know, I I think that if you look at that. I haven't changed much since then. 
But certainly now I would never be elected by the uh, Republican Party for something like that. And then I had um, a nephew who uh, came out uh, in the late 80s, uh, talked to my mom and came and talked to all of us and said, and, and my mother set the tone and said, you know, how could that possibly matter to me, my darling? As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. So that also set the tone for being kind and compassionate. And as I heard people judging others and heard people uh, acting as if somebody uh, is not worthy of their uh, support or attention or protections in the workplace, uh, I determined that uh, I, I needed to move on. So, um, it, it, you know, people can say that, that uh, you know, I, I think parties fulfill a role that's important, but we also have to realize that 90% of the time people do not live in a partisan, partisan prism, and that's P-R-I-S-M. And fortunately, some people live in a partisan prison, and that's part of the problem today. But, um, you know, most of the time, we are a community that cares about our families, that cares about making sure that we're healthy and that our kids are going to school and that people have good jobs and that there are opportunities available for all people. I, I think that we can all agree to that. And even in the legislature, 90% of the time, we do agree uh, and, and have unanimous votes. It's the, it's the other 10 to 15% of the time where the news reports on it because it's more contentious. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we aren't friends, that we can't agree to disagree, and that we don't live in a community together, together and need each other. So I mean, you mentioned that the, the, part, the two-party system has a role to play. I'm curious, what would you say the tangible benefits are to having the two-party system in our political our, our arena of, of politics? Oh my gosh, all the different ideas and the ability to to come up with different points. We're all on different journeys and different paths and we have different perspectives. And that's fabulous. I mean, if we just listen to one side or the other, we're not necessarily going to get the best results. Um, yes, I agree with a lot of the positions of certain things um, uh, of one party over another. But I also find validity and value to what some of my Republican friends are saying. And uh, we, will, we are a stronger nation with a good, strong two-party system. I don't think we're better if the system then uh, delves down into uh, throwing hand grenades at each other and trying to annihilate each other personally or attacking the whole basis of the democracy of our country. And uh, I, I, I just, that's one of the things I care most about is our democracy. That was instilled in me by my dad about the constitution and democracy and protecting our country. That's what the greatest generation did in World War II. My dad was wounded in World War II in Salerno, Italy. And, uh, he, you know, I learned beyond all else why they were over there fighting against uh, the fascism and fighting against the people that would uh, that were harming and enslaving and killing other people. So I, I just I, I can't I don't know what's happened exactly, but this this democracy is worth fighting and protecting and fighting for and protecting. And I, I feel that part of this this journey of mine is a journey of service to our state and to our country. Um, that sounds sort of highfalutin, and I'm sure people think, well, good for you. But, you know, the, the question I continually get asked is, why in the world would you want to do this? And um, my only answer really is, because I've got a lot of family and other people to focus on in my life that, you know, that I love and enjoy. But I really believe that if an opportunity and a journey and a path opens like this to make some tiny bit of difference, that I am duty bound to serve and to work to fight for our democracy and our incredible constitution. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator Patty Panzing-Brooks, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. 
Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. So, I mean, what was it that made you decide to join the state legislature in the first place, to go from law to then? It sounds like there must have been a similar situation, some kind of spark or duty that made you feel like, you know what, I got to get in there. What was that? You know, I think it was at first I had been involved significantly in fundraising uh, in our community and and co-chaired the 2007 $250 million LPS Lincoln Public Schools bond issue campaign with Kathy Campbell. Uh, former Senator Cam- Kathy Campbell, and then went on and uh, co-chaired the Union Plaza campaign, which was uh, $6 million fundraising for our for our er- first urban park, and then uh, co-chaired the Centennial Mall campaign for $9.6 million. Uh, both of those were with Roger Larson, and um, an, a beloved individual who taught me so much about raising money and treating people kindly and compassionately. And uh, when when we were raising the money on Centennial Mall, we had to go to the state and uh, went in front of the legislature for the first time and asked for funding in front of the Appropriations Committee. And, you know, we searched for portions of the law to show why the state of Nebraska was particularly vulnerable to lawsuits on those seven blocks between the Capitol and the university. Those are a very uh, unique seven blocks that are treated differently than any other place in the state. And so I started realizing, gosh, I could do I could do work with the law and understand that and lobby for things that were really important um, or work in law areas that are that will help make change. And so I think that's what really sort of did it for me. And I thought, well, this is a an avenue I can do it. I was speaking in front of committees and I I just and I was speaking with senators and I thought I, I certainly felt I I could handle the issues as well as others were handling them. And I felt like I could I, I think that's what made me realize there was good work to be done in that legislature. Well, I imagine it's it's a good training ground for both figuring out the details of policy and then how you have to collaborate with a lot of people who maybe aren't like-minded about that policy and then how to get it passed, right? All of that, uh, all of that process. So, I mean, are there specific lessons that stand out to you or things that you've maybe skills that you've honed in on from your time in the legislature that you think would translate well to being in the House of Representatives? Yes, I think it was it was a perfect training ground you're exactly right very intuitive and um you know i wish more people would run and more people with that care about our community and our our state but um certainly it's helped me to learn to speak more ably in front of other people and not be um nervous as nervous about it and it's helped me to hone arguments and be able to work, as you say, back and forth across the aisle. And, you know, I've had wonderful experiences working with Senator Linehan when we went across the state, looking at reading across the state. And and when I worked with Senator Brewer on native issues, and uh, we've worked with a number of of senators, uh, Senator Slama and Senator Geist and others on uh, trafficking issues. Senator Bostelman and I uh, led a a task force that looked at the flooding across the state. I mean, that is the brilliance and the genius of George Norris and our unique unicameral and the fact that we are nonpartisan and able to work back and forth across the aisle. It's it's truly a blessing. Um, there are attempts to get rid of our nonpartisan nature. There are attempts to have the parties become more involved. And to date, we've been able to to stop most of it and it's it's really fortunate and i hope to take a lot of that with me to congress i i'm tired of the people getting into again their partisan prism and determine and not being able to make decisions you know themselves out of the the knowledge in their own brain and the kindness in their own heart so I, I just think it's been an amazing journey. To, I will never regret a moment of the legislature. Uh, it has been such an honor to be able to help others that really have no voice. When I started to run for the legislature and signed up, 
you know, I had a much different impression about my district because my district runs from 13th and O streets to 70th and O streets and then south. And most people, when you think of that, think, well, let's see, that's all three hospitals. Um, it is, it, it also has the country club area, part of the country club. Uh, it has Taylor Meadows, it has Piedmont. So it has some real areas of affluence. And then the Lincoln Community Foundation came out with their vital signs study. And with that, I found out that that 36% and now almost 40% of the people in my district, because that it goes south, um, have live at or below 25,000 household income, not individual, but household income. So the journey that I took and the and the doors upon which I was able to knock um, told me far different stories than anything I'd understood about Lincoln ever before. And people were struggling. People were struggling with taking care. Uh, they were in the middle of a sandwich generation where they were taking care of a parent and they were taking care of kids. And uh, they were struggling on healthcare issues and healthcare costs. It, the, the issues that, that I was able to understand then after learning about that, that study really has helped me on this, this journey I'm on. And I will continue in that path as, as we move forward. Uh, clearly, I still have my corporate and real estate and business background uh, as a lawyer, but I also have a huge heart for the people that are struggling in our communities and really are trying to make ends meet and get appropriate health care. And so I, I just feel so fortunate to be able to uh, advocate for others. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up the ways that when you can move into a nonpartisan uh, way of thinking, that it's, a, it's, it's not actually so difficult to work with people to address the needs of people who need things to be addressed. Uh, but then you also bring up that there's an opposition to having a nonpartisan space in the state to begin with. When I, when I asked before about, you know, what's the, what is it, what's the actual benefit of a two-party system, it's not so much that I think there should be a one-party system, but I think that certain people, at least in Nebraska, have figured out that it's easy sometimes to uh, lean into polarization, to lean into wedge issues, and to have identification based on who's on my team, not really what are their actual policies, who is the person. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I wonder if you feel like it's difficult sometimes to enter into something like this, where like, for example, uh, my understanding is a Democrat has not won the House race for Nebraska's first district since the 60s. And my suspicion is that has a lot to do with partisan polarization, not so much candidate conversations. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we can point to somebody like Jeff Fortenberry, who's in a fair amount of trouble right now, who has probably benefited from the fact that it's just a, a group of people in that district who identify as Republicans, right? So, I mean, how do you enter into a, a polarized arena like that and maybe get people to move into something that's closer to a nonpartisan mental space like you're able to work in in the unicameral? Uh, okay, well, I I have faith again that people don't live in this in this uh, world of, of one side versus the other completely. And yes, there are some that really care about that, and that's fine. Um, I, I probably won't win those people over, or I will definitely win them over, so depending on which side they're on. So that's one thing. Uh, I do understand that nobody has won uh, since the '60s. Um, that was Claire Callan. And, um, but I have, um, you know, number one, the district has changed uh, by 10 points when we, once we redistricted. And I think that's what gave people uh, some real concern when I jumped in the race. Uh, we now have a 10 percentage point differential rather than a 20 percentage point differential, R's and D's. And um, I, I, my goal is to, work as hard as I can to get across the district and to uh, talk to people outside of Lincoln. And then uh, I hope to uh, really take Lincoln. I, I hope to let people be reminded of the fact that I am not only a longtime Lincolnite, but I, I am uh, somebody who understands the issues and cares about them and will fight for them as well as Sarpy County. I, that's a new area that we've just 
added and uh, I intend to try to get there as well. So we've got some plans to get out. Um, clearly, um, I, I feel very positive about Lincoln and, and uh, I hope to be able to um, just, ex, uh, you know, change the margins outside of Lincoln enough that I can I can do this. I think I have a real shot at this. Do you think that beyond redistricting, is Nebraska changing, whether that's in terms of demographics or in terms of just culture shifting over time? Is it becoming less of a traditionally red state? Is it moving into something that's more independent? Uh, I think I think some of it is. I, well, I certainly think in in some of the larger communities that that's happening more and more. I mean, if you look at, at Norfolk, even, they've got some very moderate and... Um, you know, some moderate people leading leading in that community, and so and and there's a lot more um, I think bipartisanship happening in that community, and certainly in Sarpy as well. And Lincoln uh, is 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 quite uh, blue, but I think that's because they just realized that there are some uh, wonderful people that have been running and I don't necessarily, I think most people vote according to the person that they like and that they know and that they might be able to go have a cup of coffee with. So I feel that, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel like people are really watching this race and really watching other races and needing needing a change. So that's that's what I'm hoping to capitalize on and no matter what, uh, the discussions always need to be uh, kinder and on the issue, not against the person. So I will truly attempt to focus on on the issues and and you know I will I will happily uh, go toe to toe with somebody on issues that I don't that I don't agree about. But I'm not going to go toe to toe on the person or whatever they're you know, makeup is or their family, but I, I will go toe to toe on the issues. Uh, you know, some of those issues, as you say, are they changing? In Lincoln, it's changing slightly because, you know, we it's a place where there there is, there are some jobs, but jobs are front and center in Lincoln, Sarpy, across the state, especially the rural areas. We're at one point, six percent unemployment for the state the lowest of any state ever since uh these numbers have been recorded and outside of outside of lincoln and omaha in the rural communities it's even lower so workforce development housing we've got to have housing to get people to move here you know it's it's great to go try and woo some of these larger companies but if we don't have the housing to bring the workers then those companies are never going to settle here and then there's infrastructure. And, you know, that is, to me, that's, that's like a gift that keeps giving. It's a, it's an amazing vote that the incumbent voted against that. And uh, it's my understanding that on the, that uh, a couple of my opponents have said they wouldn't vote for that. We're talking bridges, roads, uh, airport renovation, broadband. I mean, uh, to say that people were against the dollars that are so critically necessary and workforce development, so critically necessary to Nebraska and our and our small communities and our larger communities. You know, these are the number one issues for the state chamber and for our, our uh, community chambers around the, around the state. So, um, you know, I, I feel like these are the key issues that people are concerned about. These are the issues that are going to make a difference. Bringing people here, keeping the kids here, uh, showing opportunity and providing opportunities for young people uh, to want to stay here or to move back here. I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator Patty Panzing Brooks, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break.
the lights go down. The sound rolls. Maybe you're taking in a big spectacle action movie. Or maybe it's a rom-com. Don't you get it? I love you, you dummy. Or maybe it's a blood-soaked slasher. But no matter the genre, you're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she stand up to her? Oh, good God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If this bad rom-com boyfriend reminds me of my own boyfriend, does that mean we should break up? We never know when we'll see ourselves in a movie. But that process of discovery is exactly what we're going to talk about on the podcast Feeling Seen with me, your host, Jordan Cruciola. Each episode, we will bring in a guest from in and around film, the ones who make it, the ones who write about it, and the ones who just love it, and find out when they first saw themselves on screen. And because that's not always the case for everybody, we want to hear stories too from people who had to stitch together composite images of themselves because they didn't see a true version of who they are reflected on celluloid. So join me every Thursday starting November 11th for the Feeling Seen podcast here on Maximum Fun. Follow us, subscribe, do whatever you have to do to make sure you'll be the first to know when the show launches. We're going to laugh, we're probably going to cry, and hopefully we're going to learn a lot. Not just about the guests on the show, but about ourselves as we listen to the stories they tell. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And please leave us a review. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089. Here's what we heard this week. Hi, Rick Fulton. The thing that was driving the mutual tower at the library was the fact that there was considerable opposition to Stothert's tear-down Dale Clark plan. She brought in the mutual CEO at the very last minute to say, hey, we're going to get steamrolled on these leases. We need you to announce that you're going to build something there. So that's why they came in at the last minute. Also, the powers that be, heritage people, want, want their own library. They wanted to build it at 72nd and Dodge. They also put the pressure on the mayor to tear down Dale Clark so they could have their own little play library for themselves. Rick Fulton, thank you. Remember, you can call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator Patty Panzing Brooks, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Here's the rest of our conversation. When we think about that, I guess there's, there's kind of two dimensions to the types of change and the types of concerns voters have, one of which are the ones that you can address through the state legislature, and then there's the other much broader one about being you know, holding federal office, right? So when you talk to voters, to potential voters, and it becomes issues that they want at a federal level, I mean, what are some of the changes? What are some of the big concerns that make you want to hold this office? I think, you know, I, I think it's really important that there be we have to have access to affordable health care. It's one of the more important issues for our state and our country. And uh, it was one of the top issues that was identified on our recent campaign survey. Survey, And that's not to, um, you know, workforce development, those are all things that, that are going to be affected federally as well. Um, you know, if you, if you look at numbers from the Center for Disease Control, 6.7% of adults who were over 18 failed to obtain the medical care they needed due to due to the costs in 2019. We have to work on making long-term care affordable. We have to work on looking at, at prescription drugs and making sure that uh, the prescription drugs are, are not at such incredibly high levels. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned about reducing maternal maturity excuse me, maternal mortality rates, as well as, as infant mortality rates in our state. Uh, we have the highest, highest uh, 
maternal mortality, mothers who die uh, of any, any industrialized nation in the world. And that just makes no sense. Part of it is access to prenatal care. Uh, part of it is making sure that, uh, that people aren't priced out of going to their wellness checkups as, as mothers. And then once the baby is born, uh, making sure that they do the wellness checks for the babies as well. So, um, you know, I've had a couple bills on those kinds of things, and I, I really care about those kinds of issues. Well, so, I mean, what? how do you address, say, affordable health care? Because obviously there was a big attempt at that. Uh, we have the Affordable Care Act, uh, which still exists. It's maybe mod- It's been modified a little bit, uh, and that's very politicized, and there's a lot of critics of how exactly it's played out and whether it's helping people tangibly or not. I mean, what, what would be an avenue to make health care affordable, especially for young people now? Are you thinking like big changes, for example, you know, uh, whether we have Medicare for all comes up a lot or whether it's maybe a beefed up version of the Affordable Care Act? What, what is your vision? No, I just I think that we need to uh, build on the Affordable Care Act, that we have to um, do a, a good job of making sure that, you know, people who who have who want access, who want access to Medicare can get it. And I just think it's it's important to let people in this country where we have such wealth, it's really important to allow people who want access to healthcare to be able to get it and to make sure that our kids are covered and that we uh, have an ability to, to, to take care of people who need help and to have high reimbursement costs and high, high deductibles um, and the co-pays are high, that's, that's really making it very difficult for people to, uh, to get the access to health care that they need. Well, and so, I mean, another question then would be, how do you get enough votes to sort of move the dial on that? We're in an age of a lot of gridlock. We're in an age of obstruction at times, depending on who's in charge. So, I mean, do you think about that? Do you think about strategy? Are there maybe lessons from the unicameral that would be helpful then to take your ideas and to get momentum among your peers when you, if you were elected to the, to the House of Representatives? Well, I think about it all the time, and that is, that is a, a kind way of saying, what the heck do you think you can do in this? It's the, it's the question du jour. Um, why do you think you can do this? What difference do you think you can possibly make? And that's that's what I get from my friends and, and others who, you know, are supportive, but just worry about me doing this and, and the energy and time it takes. But my feeling is that we need to go forward if that I have a duty, if, if a journey like this opens up, I have a duty to help our country with this. And maybe maybe in 30 other states there are 30 or more other people like me that want to get us back out of the gridlock that that see the value of being able to work back and forth across the aisle that understand that uh you know there are fabulous republicans there are fabulous democrats and that we can work together and that doesn't mean I'm going to sell myself short or say that I'm ever going to agree that um, uh, an LGBTQ plus person shouldn't have workplace equity or should be able to be fired because of the person whom they love. Those ideals and and those positions will never change in my heart. But you know, I I have I had early in the legislature about my second year, I think, I I was approached by a group of Native Americans and advocates. And they came to me and we were sitting in a circle and they said, we need you to help on white clay. We were sitting in a circle and I recognized that with what little I know, truly, uh, but that a a circle is sacred to 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 our first people. So I thought to myself, well, 
maybe I should see what I can do. And I literally had people saying to me, this is ridiculous. So many other people have tried it. What do you think you could possibly do that nobody's done before? And I said, I don't know, but if I don't try, then I will have, you know, then, then nothing will happen. And so what we started to do was reviewing the laws of, of indigenous peoples, of vulnerable people, of Sheridan County and uh, the laws of the Liquor Control Commission and the, and the laws regarding uh, the Indian, um, the Indian, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And we started looking at all of those things and went up and talked to the people in white clay. I saw human trafficking actually going on there. I saw that, that what we had in our state was a despicable area of where there were mattresses and uh, beer cans thrown into these beautiful lilac bushes and even a little pair of baby moccasins. And I became determined that I needed to do what I could do. And one of the things that we found as we looked through all the laws and all the different uh, commissions and, and the laws regarding uh, a an unincorporated census area, which is what white clay is, it's 11 people, so it's an unincorporated census area. We looked at all the laws and in, uh, in the Liquor Control Commission laws, we recognized that the the set that the licenses for a liquor license cannot be renewed if there's not sufficient law enforcement so we were up there and we talked to the sheriff up there and and we had uh ketv along with us uh taping a lot of this and i asked the sheriff at that point do you think you have enough law enforcement and he said no we definitely don't i didn't tell him what that meant to me but we then went back to Lincoln and had a, a hearing on law enforcement uh, up in that area. And I had two county commissioners, one wrote in testimony and the other came and spoke uh, at the hearing saying, we definitely don't have enough law enforcement. Well, first off, you know, that, that was the trigger. They wanted, more dollars for their area for law enforcement and they did not realize that that would trigger and afterwards the lawyer for the liquor control commission came up and said do you realize what just happened today and i said yeah we know we knew that 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 not having enough enough law enforcement was enough to trigger it so that the that the liquor control commission could not renew their licenses of the four stores that were up there you know, at that point, two weeks later, the Liquor Control Commission met and they did not renew the licenses. There was a lawsuit uh, and the Supreme Court ended up upholding it and the li liquor licenses were not renewed. The four stores are now closed. Um, the, if you go up there, it's so much healthier. People are not lying in the streets. People are not uh, having fights all over. There are businesses opening up there. So. I had people who had come to me and said, well, this is ridiculous that you're doing this. What do you think you can do? The state of Nebraska, or state of South Dakota, the state of Nebraska, the, the tribe and the Bureau of Indian Affairs have all done it. Why do you think you can do anything? I don't know, but again, if we don't try it, nothing will happen and nothing will change. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator Patty Panzing Brooks, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Join the conversation on social media. Another issue that you have on your site is talking about billionaires paying their fair share. And this is this is another subject that seems to be an issue of polarization, where on the right, you seem to have an increasing almost idolization of billionaires from Donald Trump to Pete Ricketts to Charles Herbster, whereas on the left, there's this idea that billionaires are maybe an issue, that billionaires are not contributing in a way that it seems like they should proportionally to people who are not billionaires. So, I mean, what what would be your plan then as far as making billionaires pay a fair share? What, is, what does that look like? How is it different from what we have today? Well, what looks different is we just have to do a better job of taking care of our low-income people. And that includes farmers. It includes everyone. And I, I think that 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 may be 
not my favorite use. And I'm not, I, I just think that what we need to really do is focus instead on low income people and recognize that we have to do a better job just taking care of our own and taking care of the people in our communities. Our communities are what makes us the, the strongest. And if we have to, we are, uh, the sum of, of, of our weakest and most vulnerable. So in, in that regard, I really feel it's important that people do take care of, um, of our most vulnerable. And, it, it, you know, we need tax policy that is, that is for middle income people. And we need to make sure that, that all people have an opportunity to thrive and grow. What does that look like? I, I, I don't know. There will be many opportunities and many thoughts that come forward. My main thought is to protect vulnerable people like we do with, we protect farmers. And, and I think that's valuable and important for our state. And, uh, but we have to do the same for other people who are really hurting as well. Well, and you, you mentioned a few other things in this section on your site, like, for example, making sure that there's a level playing field for small business owners who are struggling to compete. So, I mean, as far as some of that goes, I guess, what I mean, I know you, you said there's plenty of time when you get elected to sort of figure these things out. But as far as just a vision for how things could be working better, how do you make a level playing field? How do you sort of combat corporate monopolies and some of the problems that they create? I, I guess the main thing that I'm sort of – saying there quickly is that we you know i'm i'm a small business owner myself my husband and i have a small business and what what i don't want to have happen is to woo and give give all sorts of tax credits to new businesses to that want to come in at the risk and the detriment of those who are already here paying taxes and working hard and making a difference in our communities day in day out so yes we need to promote business we need to bring people in we also have to not forget the businesses that are here that are that are living and working and and adding to the whole economic stream in our communities. And so uh, as far as other issues that come up, I know we've talked about some of the big ones. And as far as just helping people in general, it sounds like you have kind of a general philosophy of uh, trying to address issues sort of uh, from the start, right? Every issue is kind of connected in one way or another, and it can be complicated to start to get in and figure out what to do about all of them. And it also seems like something where uh, just hearing what people want is useful. And I imagine that Nebraskans have various, uh, you know, have, have various visions for the country as well. And you've got to sort of figure out how do I, how do I make this something that everybody's happy with, or how do I make it something where people feel heard? So, I mean, what's the process of going from just talking to voters and how does that ever translate into specific policy proposals so that you can tell that there's maybe a line from, yes, these people are saying this and here's the direct result in something that I can pass. That's a, that's a really good question. So you're talking about, I mean, I know how to do it in the legislature and that's my goal in the, in Congress as well is to, to talk to people, to listen, and then to move forward after hearing uh, from people what their main concerns are federally and how it's affecting them locally. So it's a matter of having multiple listening sessions and and talking to people about their greatest concerns and then taking that forward to congress so that we can affect things here on a local level from a national perspective are there other issues that you have that we didn't talk about today that you uh that you want to make sure that my listeners are aware of that you that's on your uh that you're on your agenda my history in the legislature, having done a lot of work on, on trafficking is important. The work that I've done on juvenile justice, I'm uh, significantly grateful to have been able to do that work with a majority of the legislature supporting my bills and going forward on all of that. You know, I think most people could would agree that children should have a, a right to counsel since it's a constitutional right and that kids should not be Play, our Nebraska kids shouldn't be placed into solitary confinement. Those are a couple of the big key things that I've worked on that I feel really positive about. Um, 
We've also worked on on school resource officers and making sure that they are that they are trained to deal with these kids and that they know about trauma informed care, understanding that some of the kids have uh, learning disabilities. You know, we have we have an overpopulation of kids with learning disability and kids of color in our juvenile justice system. And part of that is because we do not have good mental health uh, care across the state for our kids or for adults. So these are some real issues that we need to discuss. We closed down the mental health institutions in the 80s and 90s after one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, really shed a light on what was happening in those institutions. But now what's happening instead is we don't have enough help in the the hospitals are overrun and the psychiatric units are overrun. And then uh, we end up putting uh, people in in jail for a mental health issue. It's, it's actually a health issue. And we're putting people in jail for that. That That's just something that is not appropriate. It's not kind. It's not best practices. We have got to do better. And people say, well, it costs money. Well, it costs money to put these put people in prison with mental health issues as well. And so, uh, you know, when you think about that and it's $33,000 a year and for kids, it's it's over 50, you know, we, we have to do better and uh, we can we can use our dollars way more wisely than we are. And so if anybody wants to learn more about your campaign or get involved, where should they go? Thanks for asking that. It's pattyforcongress.com. And I appreciate that. And, and uh, there, there's a bunch of information online. And uh, you can also reach out to me through that website. And I would love to hear from people. Well, I appreciate getting to hear from you today, getting to know you a little bit better. And uh, yeah, thank you for talking to me. This has been a great experience. Wow, Tom, you asked some really good questions. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. My name is Susan Judd, and I'm calling about the new library location. I think this is more about the homeless than about the library. Instead of moving the library, how about beefing up services for the needy? This is a wealthy city, and we ought to have some compassion for the needy instead of moving them out of the library, one of the few places they can go. Thank you. Bye.